0: This is episode number 124 of Patrick Jones Baseball and on this episode we have Dr. Emily Splickle. Dr. Emily is a functional podiatrist, human movement specialist, and global educator in barefoot science. She's also an author and is is someone who really brings a ton of uh, unique insight in this episode where we talk a lot about the foot, the ankle, uh, fascia, why that's so important, and just some ways to help prevent getting uh, plantar fasciitis for athletes or if you do have it, um, what to do. She also does stem cells on all of her uh, patients, not all of her, but on, on some of her patients that she sees and explains why that is so important. So this is an episode where kind of, it's, it's for baseball players, it's for coaches to help understand and help prevent some of these injuries. But it's also to help gain a, a bigger understanding of how the body moves, um, how and why the feet are so important, and how it can help us play um, at a higher level and play longer for um, um, at the same time. So appreciate Dr. Emily Splickle coming on, and I think uh, you, everyone will be uh, getting a, a great deal of, of value out of her as, as well. So please welcome Dr. Emily Splickle all right and we are now live with dr emily Splickle. thanks for coming on today
1: of course thank you so much it's an honor
0: so you have uh, you know a pretty uh, pretty great resume here you're a functional podiatrist hu- human mu- movement specialist global educator in barefoot science um how long did it take you to to, uh, to get to this point
1: <laughs> it was 13 years of school and. Uh,
0: wow. 13 years of school?
1: 13 years, and I won't tell you how much my student loans are, but yeah.
0: Unbelievable. Like when you started out, did you think it was going you know, to, you were going to embark on this 13 year journey in school?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, originally, I thought law school and then, you know, switched to medicine. And then went back and got my master's, and now I'm in a fellowship. Apparently, I like to learn, and I love education. So, you know, it's—I don't think of it as, oh my goodness, it's 13 years. It's just more a journey of continuously learning.
0: So, what would you say you you do most on a day to day basis?
1: Hats. Um, the hat that I wear would be between being a clinician. That's the the functional podiatry human movements, but I'm also an educator. I have my own education company. Uh, I'm a consultant for many different companies, whether it's movement companies, um, fascial companies, footwear, orthotic companies as well. And then I am also a CEO and I run uh, two of my own companies, one being a product based company. So I guess I'm also in the manufacturing business as well.
0: (laughs) You're a busy woman yes I am Um, so what would be a human movement specialist like what what does that entail
1: yeah so I apply I have a master's in human movement and when I was going through podiatry school medical school my training um, it was very Western medicine based meaning that I learned about the foot and ankle function very isolated, not getting the patient out of the chair, looking at the way that the patient, you know, walks, moves, squats, step up, step down. Uh, So I, and that kind of conflicted with the way that I thought of movement, thought of patient pathology, let's say. So as I was going through my training, I actually took a little bit of a break, went back to school to get my master's in human movement, which was how I connected my background in sports fitness with medicine and it's really the link in between. So I use a holistic integrated understanding of the human body to understand movement dysfunction. That would be the movement specialist. Uh, Most of my patients may have foot pain. It's not the only reason why someone comes into my office. Um, They may have a non-responding hip pain or back pain or knee pain. And they want me to look at the way that they move to see if it's something with their relationship with the ground. And that's what ties in my podiatry is my passion is how the foot relates to the ground and what footwear and surfaces and orthotics and neurostimulation of the foot does to that relationship.
0: So would that entail you just watching or like watching them walk barefoot or how, how do you do that?
1: Um, I mean, I have them do a variety of movements. Walking is one of them. Uh, Some patients, I will watch them run, depending on the sport or uh, the nature of their injury. And then for dancers, let's say I want to watch them actually do their dance movement. Um, Everyone is doing squats, rotational patterns, step up, step down. So it's it's not just limited to walking. Walking can tell you a lot about a patient and their dysfunctions, but it's a little bit more than that, depending on the sport, or the injury or really the demands of that individual.
0: What do you think of, um, I've seen this a lot, of of athletes who will work out barefoot? I love that. Okay.
1: (laughs) I'm a huge barefoot advocate. That,
0: That would make sense, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's part of what I travel around the world speaking is barefoot science. Um, so the the benefit of that, I actually call it barefoot before shod, is kind of what what you're you're asking or what I'm a huge advocate of. Understanding how footwear, shoes, cleats, skates doesn't matter what it is, how it starts to disconnect the foot. From the rest of the body, from the ground, from the nervous system. If we get out of our shoes or uh, footwear, sport-specific footwear, before we get onto the field or the courts, etc., you can then prime the nervous system. So I think a barefoot training, barefoot movement prep as a neuro activation.
0: What do you What are you priming the nervous system for?
1: Uh, for any movement, for stabilization. So let's say if you warm up barefoot and then you put on your shoes and you go onto the field, then you are essentially more efficiently or effectively waking up the demands of the nervous system that are required for running, jumping, stop and go, quick dynamic movement, which is all related to how your foot is contacting the ground. So if you can prime the nervous system, you will stabilize Faster you can think performance goes up injury goes down
0: mm. it Goes back to uh, ground force reaction and things like that, too, correct?
1: Yes your ability to perceive the ground uh, Anticipate the ground feel the impact forces that are coming in Use mm-hmm. the impact forces that are coming in for potential or elastic energy and really it's it's directly related to stabilization And energy transfer is the the biggest thing that I try to harness with patients or when I travel and I teach is the more that you can anticipate what you are about to do from a movement perspective, the uh, better off you'll be from a performance or an injury prevention perspective.
0: If someone has very extremely tight um, ankles or, or their foot's pretty tight, are they more prone to injury or less prone actually?
1: Yes. So if you have very tight ankles or let's say a really rigid foot, tight hips, doesn't matter where you are, uh, what, what joint you're referencing, you're starting to get a restriction in the mobility or the optimal movement pattern, which means your, your body is going to take the path of least resistance, which equals compensation. Um, let's say if you can't move through your ankle, you will go around your ankle, and most people will pronate, and that pronation is leads to really a myriad of problems as well, because now you've destabilized or unlocked your foundation, and if your foundation is unlocked and unstable, the rest of the kinetic and kinematic chain starts to fall.
0: Mm. fall gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Um, a few years ago I um I had a planar fascia tear in my foot. I had surgery in my left and I, so I never actually stretched out my calf and foot after that surgery, so it was extremely tight and I was playing baseball, so I was out playing every single day. Long story short, ended up tearing the planar fascia tear. It was a pain in the you know what to get the it literally took me about three months, I would say. I had about five PRP injections, um, you know, had did the regular therapy I would say what helped more than anything, again, for me personally, is uh, active release technique. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Incredible. And I did the exact same thing on my hamstring after I had surgery as well. Are you familiar with that at all?
1: Yep, yep. So ART is something I don't personally do ART. I'm not a manual therapist, but um, I do the... And I don't do PRP. I actually do stem cells, but it's within Uh the same, within the same category. Um, But yes. So you do, do,
0: you do stem cells?
1: Yes, I do stem cells. One of the biggest conditions that I do it for is plantar fascial tears. (laughs) So
0: I I mean, more, more I think about, I might've had, it might've been, I might've had one or two stem cells. I mean, as well. Um, How do you. Pre- prevent i would say what's the best way to prevent plantar fasciitis because in baseball there's so much standing around and this is where you'll see some a lot of guys will eventually get the plantar fasciitis because it's every single day pounding on that ground and and i've seen the you know some of the best players in the world like uh, albert pools with the angels they have he's had surgeries on both feet for the plantar for plantar fasciitis so what would be kind of your advice for to help prevent that
1: yeah so What's unique with baseball, which is different than other sports, is what you said is the standing period, so the time that you're statically standing on your feet. Um, obviously, there could be a little bit of kind of fidgety, but standing is very unnatural on the body. Your Our bodies are designed to constantly move, mm. so if – if the athlete was even just walking or pacing or fidgeting versus more in a static position, it would be less stressful to those tissues being plantar fascia, bottom of the foot, um, can connect into the Achilles tendon. When we stand statically and when we stand statically in maybe more stiff shoes, thinking of some of the cleats. So a stiffer shoe is going to make the foot even more rigid The tissue, your fascia, plantar fascia, but fascia fascia, your entire body is an interwoven web of connective tissue. That connective tissue sits on, um, like a contraction, but there's a baseline contraction that is happening throughout your body, specifically your feet and your lower legs. Let's say your calves that connect to your Achilles tendon. So being in a constant contraction starts to, um, dehydrate your connective tissue, your fascia and your tendons. So you're sitting on a tone that's getting stiffer and stiffer, which means that when you get out of that situation or to prevent the stress of that situation, you have to do body work, myofascial release, ART, if you, excuse me, if you want to choose that one, or you could do a self myofascial release roll the bottom of the foot on a trigger point ball, a lacrosse ball, a golf ball. I don't care what you use, but you need to bring the hydration back to your tissue, releasing the calves, which will take the the stress off of the Achilles tendon. And that has to be done literally on an everyday basis because you need to essentially think of it as there's a tissue stress theory which means that whatever stress you're placing on your body accumulatively starts to uh, weaken the tissue, plantar fascia, we'll say. As that starts to creep up, you have to balance it by offsetting that stress through your tissue recovery, body work, we'll just call it, or myofascial work. Every tissue has a threshold that it'll start to break. You hit your threshold because you ruptured your plantar fascia, right? So you either need to Offset the stress by either, uh, wearing orthotics, changing your footwear, uh, not standing in one place. Like how do you, how do you decrease the stress or don't stand in one place several days in a row? Right. What's the reality of it? Um, that's modifying the stress or you go to the other side, which is controlling the recovery. That's the only ways that you can prevent an injury, right? So modify stress. Modify the recovery and then create that balance so that you can ride under the radar or Ride under that threshold is essentially what you're trying to do Athletes it's a little bit harder because your job is to perform using your body so your stress level goes higher, 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 and you're going to hit that threshold faster than let's say like a weekend warrior or someone who's not on their feet literally for their profession, um, which means that athletes then have to look at the recovery side as extremely important. And that's why athletes are doing the cryo and the infrared and the air and there's people who can do manual work on them um, every day, because you have to balance that stress. Um, That's really the secret to preventing a injury such as plantar fasciitis or a plantar fascial tear. Once you start getting your first injury, now you start to change the composition of your tissue. The collagen (laughs) starts to change its composition, and you become less and less elastic which is how we need to be and that then drops your threshold so now your injury risk goes up
0: mm, okay does
1: that make sense
0: yes no it, it does make sense um so you're, you're essentially saying it would be better for someone because again like we just talked about there's a lot of standing around in baseball it would be better to have at least a little bit of, of just constant movement Right. Just just a little bit. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything like obviously you can't run circles out in the outfield when you're waiting for the pitch, but just a little bit of something. So it's not just straight static into bursting full speed right away.
1: Exactly. Yes. So if you're standing statically and then you do have to suddenly right, you have to get a ball or something like that, then that sudden is going, that's what's going to rupture, right? Or micro tear, it starts as a micro tear in the tissue. And then those micro tears start to get repaired as sticky scar tissue. And then that's where you start to snowball into this kind of cascade of plantar fasciitis into plantar fascial tear, or Achilles tendinitis, into Achilles tendinosis, things like that, that I would say if you can I mean, wearing an arch support (laughs) technically does take the stress off of the the bottom of the foot, which is a recommendation people are usually surprised that I make because I'm so pro barefoot natural foot function, but standing is defined the natural function of the foot. Yeah. So you have to kind of modify that in any way. It could be an arch support, uh, whether it's a custom orthotic or just, you know, other, um, over the counter arch supports. Or constantly either shift your feet or go into like a almost like you're pedaling, like you're lifting the heel, lowering the heel, kind of like doing stuff like that. Spreading the toes as much as you can in in the cleats, um, engaging the toes. You gotta really be
0: like fidgety, like you yeah. said. You gotta be disciplined about it.
1: You do, yeah. The more that you're standing out there, and you have to be doing it while paying attention to things, right? You, I'm sure you're not sleeping and kind of daydreaming, but you want to be present in the moment while doing that. So it has to be um, almost a constant thing that you do so that you're not even thinking that you're doing it.
0: Okay, I understand. I understand. Um, I'm sure you're in New York. Um, Kevin Durant, he just signed with the Brooklyn Nets. He just ruptured his Achilles. Would him like doing some doing some of this stuff Would that would have helped prevented it or is it a case of that's just a lot of wear and tear on his body
1: uh it could have been it could have been both right that when you start getting the micro tear the micro tear or the micro injury the priority for the body work and the constant fidgeting and understanding the injury risks is really important. Um, What unfortunately is not done that well in professional sports is pre-screening athletes for certain injuries, specifically foot and ankle.
0: Like physical screen, you mean?
1: uh, Well, so I I would be able to profile certain injuries that athletes are susceptible to based on their injury history, looking at their movement patterns, and looking at their foot type, and knowing the position of the sport that they're playing. Right. So I understand the demands of their sport. Foot type is huge. That tells you a lot. So like if you, you
0: have, mean when you say foot type, you mean like a flat foot or?
1: A, yeah. Okay. So if you have a higher arch foot, then that's going to make your foot a little bit more rigid. Um, people who have a higher arch foot typically have tighter ankles and Achilles tendons. Yeah, so that already puts you at a certain certain injury risk. And now you're standing statically for your sport. Okay, now I'm like compounding these things, and you've had a history of Achilles tendonitis for you know several years, maybe in high school, maybe you know, whatever the history was, that's a recipe for um an Achilles tendon rupture.
0: Can you can you stretch the Achilles too much?
1: Um Yes. So let's say if you have Achilles tendonitis and then you stretch it, you could aggravate it more, let's say, or if you do, let's say a ballistic type of Achilles tendon stretching and you actually don't have that elasticity and you force it a little bit more than you should, then yes, you can micro tear it and create that cascade. Um, I actually see a lot of people that have structurally short Achilles tendons, and it's not something that is really kind of screened or understood with the athletes that I've worked with. If you have a structurally short Achilles tendon, you cannot stretch that to become longer. Everybody has their own, um, characteristic elasticity or connective tissue properties. We'll just say so, if you think of like a sprinter, like a track and field sprinter, where they're doing a hundred meter dash, a lot of those athletes are are structurally a little bit tighter and lack the flexibility of what you would see in some other athletes. But that is a advantage to them. So, a lot of those sprinters are fast because they have structurally short Achilles tendons mm. and are able to recoil out of them very fast. And are able to shorten their contact time, which is technically how you run fast.
0: See, and this is why I'm really glad I brought you on the show because you have this, you know, this type of insight where someone, the average person might be like, well, you're extremely tight. Let's, you know, really try to loosen you up as much as possible. Injury, that's when an injury would happen, correct?
1: Yes, exactly. So we, we essentially choose sports or the sport could choose us. I don't know. Um, based off of our physiology, obviously our kinetics and our kinematics, our height, all of that. Um, you know, like gymnastics is a power sport. So I, I was a gymnast for 13 years. My body gravitates towards tight. So I obviously have to be flexible, but I kind of recoil right back in to be a little bit tighter I need to use that as my advantage, which means, okay, you're thinking power tumbling and power vaulting, things like that. Whereas someone who's a little bit more lean might gravitate towards, uh, cross country and marathons and right. So people have different body types and physiques and you're like, that's totally a marathon runner. You can just tell based off of their, uh, physique. And it's not that their physique was shaped by doing marathon running. They are good at long distance running, right? So you kind of want to understand that as well, that some of the fastest runners on some of these teams probably are also the tightest, which means that they also are going to be at risk for certain injuries, such as Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis,
0: Understood. Gotcha. Gotcha. In all seriousness, that makes a ton of sense. So I know you earlier you talked about how you do stem cell. Yes. Can you kind of explain that?
1: Uh, yes. So uh, the stem cell injections that I do in my office are placental based and umbilical cord based, where there's several other ones. There's obviously bone marrow, there's adipose or fat, and then there's PRP, where PRP I'll put in with... Um, the bone marrow and the adipose so you are either getting stem cells from a donor we'll say which will be the placental and the umbilical cord or you take your own own stem cells from the bone marrow and the fat etc and essentially it's undifferentiated mesenchymal stem cells which when you inject into a joint or uh, a ligament or fascia or a fracture it'll differentiate into it. will differentiate into that type of tissue. So let's say, um, I have knee arthritis and I inject a stem cell into my knee. It's going to stimulate the chondrocytes, which creates cartilage. You can also think of it as it's going to attract the building blocks that stimulate those specific cells. Yeah. So in a plantar fascial tear, which is one of the most common injuries that I use it for, it is stimulating the fibroblast that is creating the collagen, which is actually repairing the tear. A lot of stem cells are also anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrolytic, which means it breaks up scar tissue. So not only is it cleaning out the area, or the injury, but it is giving your body the building blocks to then repair the injury. Um, why I choose placental and umbilical cord stem cells is that it's part of, it's a cost. Um, the ease of injection for the patient. I don't have to go to the OR and tap the iliac crest or draw out their, their, um, adipose cells and then spin it down and get the stem cells. Same thing with PRP. You have to draw the blood, spin it down, reinject it. So it's, it's faster. It's easier. It's less invasive. And a lot of the efficacy is very similar to some of the auto stem cells. So your own stem cells. Um, I have a 90% success rate when I use stem cells on plantar fascial tears i use them on ligament tears i've used them in fractures Um, the joints in the foot and ankle are a little bit different than other joints so i don't see as high of an effect on that so if you're thinking an athlete gets turf toe and now they're starting to get arthritis in the big toe joint i don't see as good of success on that more soft tissue is where i see the highest success foot and ankle specific
0: How many times do you have to do that um, injection?
1: Uh, So my protocol is very specific. Let's say I have a patient that tore their plantar fascia like you did, right? Um, And just for the listeners, if they're not familiar with the plantar fascial tear is – well, let me go back one more. So your plantar fascia is three bands of tissue and so you have your medial central lateral band of your plantar fascia and then it's also in layers – so it's superficial and deep if that makes sense right yes. so tears are typically in the central band and it'll be very much specified it is the deep fibers of the central band are what tore or it's the superficial fibers of the central band that tore yeah so you just you're you're getting a very specific anatomical region of the fascia sometimes people think it's like more the Achilles tendon. And if you tear the Achilles tendon, a lot of time it's like, whoo, like, (laughs) you know, it ruptured, it recoiled, right? Or like a bicep tendon. If you tear your bicep tendon in your arm, I mean, that's going to recoil because it's under so much tension. The plantar fascia is a little bit different. When you tear it, it's more like a fraying of a rope and it's messy. So the fibers stay next to each other and – uh, kind of readhere to each other and then it creates scar tissue and it, it, it's just different. It's not like, Oh, I ruptured my plantar fascia and now it recoiled and my arch is going to drop and I'm not going to be able to survive I, uh, something like that. Um, so my protocol for that understanding that that's how the injury prevents or presents is I do two injections total, one injection two weeks apart. So I do an injection two weeks later, I piggyback it and I kind of, um, kick it up a notch with another injection. And then the patient is in a cam walker or a walking boot for four weeks. That's one of the most specific parts of it is that I immobilize the patient for a four week period so that I take all of the stress off of the tissue and I can allow the growth factors and the building blocks to do what they need to do to repair the tissue. I then transition my period and uh, my patient to a four week period after the first four weeks of a stiff shoe. So uh, there's many stiff shoes that are out there. Uh, Hoka is like an example of one where it doesn't move and fold, et cetera. Maybe we have a rigid orthotic in there. And then we're starting to transition into ambulation without a cam walker, starting to get some foot strengthening, starting to do body work to the tissue around where the injury is, not exactly on the injury, but around. And then your third month, you're transitioning out of that situation bringing foot strengthening and essentially just upping the stress balancing it um and that's where i have my 90 percent success rate i do a repeat mri three months later because the peak efficacy of stem cells is three months and a lot of the mris pre versus post they'll be read um plantar fascial tear no longer evident or reduced plantar fascial tear like you can actually see it within the MRI of the efficacy of it and then I'm matching it to the way that my patient presents and a majority of them are saying I don't feel pain anymore uh, I'm able to do x y or z again so I'm, I'm getting a subjective and an objective response to the stem cells
0: when it comes to what type of shoes they they start to wear after all of this happens, is there a certain brand that you recommend?
1: Uh, so the stiff shoe that I like during month two is actually it's Hoka is an example, but I never,
0: what is it called? Hoka
1: Hoka. Yeah. Okay. So Hoka is an ultra marathon running shoe. It has a very thick cushion, so I'm not a big fan of it, but it's, it's a rigid shoe um, which is good in a situation like this. There's another brand that's called ReShod, R-E-S-H-O-D. So their website is ReShod.com and it is a stiff shoe, but it has less cushion. It was actually designed by a speed walker and so it has a rocker built into it. So mechanically I really like it um, and it transitions patients really well. When you go from that into monthly, Three, you can go into really whatever normal footwear you, you used, but I might say put an orthotic in there.
0: Four, a custom, custom orthotic?
1: Yeah, custom orthotic, or you could actually – one of the best over-the-counter insoles is power steps. So you could put a power step in there, which gives, some, gives good control depends on the foot type, but it gives good control. Um, so then you're transitioning to a shoe that has quasi support, but then it has the arch support. So now we're slowly downgrading it. And then by month four, could we stay in those shoes, but take out that arch support by month five? Can you go into Vibram or Vivo barefoot or whatever your end goal really is? It might be that minimal of a shoe. Well, that's going to take us what is that? Five six months to get into that.
0: From a from a preventative standpoint, is there a certain other certain brands that you would recommend to people listening who are playing playing baseball? Like, I know Nike is well known for a pretty narrow shoe.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: And New Balance is, is wide usually.
1: Uh yes. Yeah. So you're you're wanting a shoe recommendation for when you have to stand?
0: Yeah, like playing. <laughs>
1: Okay, so uh, I would say it's less about the shoe and more about what's in the shoe. Mm. So if you used, I mean, honestly, I, I recommend Power Step to so many patients because it gives good control. If you have have the Power Step or the arch support in the shoe, technically the rest of the shoe doesn't matter as much, right? Gotcha. Um, But if you have a rigid foot, higher arch rigid foot, and you're in a shoe that has a heel counter, which is the back, if you take the back of the shoe and you try to squeeze the heel, and if you can't, that means it has a counter in it. It either has a plastic or a cardboard counter, which is adding support to a foot. But if you have a high arch, it's actually making your foot more rigid. So that could increase your risk of Achilles tendinitis and things like that. So you want to make sure that the footwear matches your foot type. If you have a flatter foot, you technically could use that heel counter to give you stability.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So it's, it's understanding, is my foot a little bit more rigid? If it is, I kind of have to strip away some of the rigidity of the shoe and just use the arch support as the support. And then if I have a flatter foot, maybe I want to combine the -the over-the-counter arch support with a counter and maybe a midsole shank that's going through it. So you you add features based off of how you understand your foot type.
0: Do you uh, recommend stretching your toes out pretty regularly too? I think you might have mentioned that earlier in this episode, but I, I don't remember now that I think about it.
1: Uh, Yes. Well, so the stretch for the toes that I like is by using what's called correct toes. So it's essentially a silicone piece that goes in between each of your toes. Um, It stretches the small muscles in your feet. It technically stretches your plantar fascia. So anyone who has plantar fasciitis, I really like that. Um, It's important for people to know that your plantar fascia runs from your heel all the way into the base of your toes. So it doesn't stop at the ball of your foot, it continues actually into your digits. So, stretching your toes, meaning with correct toes, splaying the toes is important. Um, you can find correct toes at correcttoes.com. It's a really great product. Um, then you could use that technically in your shoes. So, you could wear correct toes in your um, New Balance, or, you know, like you said, Nike is more narrow. Mizuno is narrow, New Balance is wider, Vivo Barefoot is wider, um, Zero Shoes is wider. So they, every shoe company has its own last shape and not every last matches the shape of a majority of feet <laughs> or it might not match your foot. So when you find a brand that works for your foot type that is comfortable but also accommodates the shape of your foot, You kind of want to stay with that brand because their last is made to a specific shape.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Does now this, this question might seem out there. Does your toenails in any shape or form matter at all to anything?
1: Uh, It would in the sense of ingrown toenails. So if uh, let's say an athlete keeps getting an ingrown toenail in their big toe, Um, usually it's on the, the inside, inside of it. So closer to the midline of the body is where you would get the, the ingrown toenail. That could be with the way that you're cutting them and then the stress of the shoe. So if a shoe is cut a little bit more narrow or angled inward, it might hit the edge of that toenail. And then when we run, a lot of people run actually not pushing off of the end of their toe. They go around their toe. So they'll pinch the side of the nail into the shoe or into the ground. And then that causes the ingrown toenail. So it it can be a combination of it. Um, I will look at an ingrown toenail, especially repetitive ingrown toenails, as a mechanical cause. Like that gives me a reason to assess the foot and assess the way that the patient is walking. And then I can explain to them that you're getting your ingrown toenails because of how you walk and you're walking the way that you're walking because your hips are tight or your ankle is tight, or you have an external rotation uh, imbalance at your knee joint. And then that kind of ties in what brought them in was the ingrown toenail. But the cause is, is much greater
0: oh, okay I understand I, uh yeah it, it, it's so weird I actually my 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 big toe toenail and this one right next to it both uh, you would look at it they're most the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life they really are and they're both like got infected or somehow I got both of the toenails removed completely okay. they grew back just as ugly
1: <laughs> so you have a fungal infection in them
0: yeah and it's, I, guess, I assume it's just going to be like that for the rest of my life.
1: Well, yeah. So let me I'll, – I'll speak to that real quick. So with the fungal infection, which creates maybe a yellow, a discoloration, a thickening of the nail is maybe what yep. – I'm just putting your nail here. Yep. Um, uh, what starts that or predisposes you to that is a trauma. So if you think years in in baseball cleats or shoes or tight shoes and you're – Uh, kind of stop and go. So it's certain footwear or movement patterns create micro trauma to the nail. So essentially you're hitting the nail into the nail bed or the nail matrix. And then that creates trauma. And then the trauma predisposes the fungus to get under the nail. So the fungus lives not in the nail, but in the nail bed. So for if, if you're experiencing that, uh, and I know your history, I would say, okay, it makes sense. You've spent years in tighter shoes, playing stop and go. You know, you see it a lot in, you know, soccer, football, runners, baseball, etc. That totally makes sense. Once you have it, if you don't take the nail off or you take the nail off, but then you don't treat the fungus, it's not going to come back normal. Okay. So if you took your nails off or you lost your nail, but you didn't take an antifungal medication. It's gonna come right back.
0: Yeah, I think. Mean, I mean, it literally came back worse. I think <laughs> it? because
1: because one the catch twenty two of that is like one you want to take the nail off to like start over. Right. But now I just expose your nail bed,
0: and you never mm-hmm.
1: want to expose the nail bed because that's what predisposes you to fungal infection.
0: So okay, that, see. I, I thought that it was from like being in the shower and like that sort of, No, okay. It wasn't nothing to do with that.
1: Yeah, it was it was the micro trauma. Um and again I see it in so many athletes and in so many runners because of how running is you're hitting the front of the shoe. Um Do and, most
0: of them get it removed?
1: Uh meaning take the nail off? Yeah. You know, that's like a doctor specific thing. I would do it. I was never taught to do it, but I would do it in the sense of like okay, we have to start over because that nail is so embedded with fungus. But as the nail's growing out, you're using a topical. Maybe we're lasering it and you're taking oral antifungal. Like I'm doing anything to attack this fungus because it literally is like mold and carpet. And I would yeah. tell my patients that. I'm like, you know, like if you get really moldy carpet, you, you're just better off tearing that stuff out because it's so – it just gets embedded that – some of the reality is it gets so embedded in the nail and the nail bed, you might not get a nail ever again like what it used to look like, and that's the reality. And I, I feel bad, especially like some of my female patients, they would literally like to start bawling, <laughs> I'm like.
0: Well, I'm not gonna do that, but.
1: Yeah, uh... <laughs> hopefully you didn't start crying. But um, I mean, it's it's a cosmetic thing, right? Is really what it is. Outside of you could say, well, now my nail is thicker, so it hits my shoe different and it makes it hard for me to wear cleats or certain shoes because the nail is thicker. Yeah. So it it could actually have a functional impact as well, not just a um, cosmetic impact.
0: Okay. I understand. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm glad I got that cleared up. I mean, I guess if I do get it removed. The thing is, though, is I don't want to get it removed again because it was such a pain to get it removed. And then, uh, you know, I just I'd rather just look have my feet look ugly. It's not like I walk around barefoot, like with no socks on that much anyway.
1: Yeah, it's just the nature of of playing a sport and having micro injury that, you know, it could be your badge of honor or something.
0: Right, exactly. That's what I tell my girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> um, so we you were talking earlier about uh, fascia and how sometimes you take when you do when you do inject it's it's into the fascia. Why is fascia or is fascia so important?
1: Yes, fascia is everything when it comes to movement. Um, again, fascia is it's the connective tissue that surrounds all of your muscles and all of your bones. It's almost like a saran wrap that connects every single part of your body. Why it's so important is for several reasons. One, your fascial web has over 100 million sensory nerves. So I look at your fascial connective tissue as an extension of your brain, which means that it is sensing the environment, it's interpreting the environment, and that translates to a necessary component for movement. The other part is that your fascia is what translates the potential energy of dynamic movement. So when you contract your muscles, you have an effect on your fascia and it's the muscle contraction fascial effect that allows you to absorb impact forces and release them as elastic energy. So it's an energy transfer component and it's what provides stability it's what allows you to resist gravity so there's definitely the movement but I don't want to forget that there's so many sensory nerves in your fascia as well
0: is there a way to help your fascia like is there like stuff you should be doing to like warm it up or something
1: Uh, so from a fascial health perspective, um, you want to keep it hydrated. That could be from you literally drinking water to foam rolling. So body work hydrates your fascia as well, right? So you want hydrated fascia and then you also need to keep your fascia, um, like a rubber band and the rubber band is built out of movement patterns. So just foam rolling or trigger point releasing your fascia doesn't train it to be a rubber band. That's where like plyometrics, right? Plyometrics is essentially training your fascia to be like a rubber band. So you have to do specific movements to train that aspect of your fascial tissue. Um, Ballistic, uh, uh, kind of like a, a recoil and then a back kind of, it's, it's like bouncy movements. There's a lot of fascial programs that are out there. Um, yoga does not train your fascia, but gyrotonics trains your fascia. So you, you can kind of look at it that way as well. And then the third way is that your fascia needs to be tense or create tension in a very fast way. The way that you create fascial tension is through isometric contractions. If, for example, you're engaging your core, it creates tension and stability through all of your core muscles into your thoracolumbar fascia, which goes into your lats and your glutes and everything kind of spider webs out. That's based off of an initial rapid isometric contraction of let's say your TVA or your deep core muscles. So you have to train that also. So it's body work, hydration, fascia release, train the fascia to be a rubber band, train the fascia to be tense, rapid tension for stability.
0: Gotcha. Emily, you've been, this has been awesome. You've been an incredible, uh, incredible guest. Uh, I've I've learned a lot personally from this episode. If anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way?
1: So, uh, you can find me on any of the social platforms. I'm on Facebook, which is my name, uh, Dr. Emily Splickle, as well as Instagram. And then my education company, if listeners are interested in learning more about how I teach foot activation, foot typing. Um, The website is ebfaglobal.com. I wrote a book called Barefoot Strong. That website is barefootstrong.com. And then that'll link to all the different sites that you can get it. Um, There's also resources on how you can assess your foot type on that website. Um, And then my practice of how I practice podiatry is just my name. So DrEmilySplickle.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.